If you have a copy of God's Word with you there, please join me in the book of Jeremiah. We'll begin at the 37th chapter this morning. Jeremiah 37, we'll actually be going through 37, 38, 39 this morning um, to try to give you a little advance. Next Sunday, we'll likely cover chapters 40 through 45. The week after that, 46 to 51. The week after that, chapter 52. And we'll have completed, Lord willing, the book of Jeremiah. This morning, selected readings, beginning chapter 37 at verses 1 and 2. Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. I come down to verse 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army that came back to help you is about to return to Egypt to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourselves saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us. For they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of the Chaldeans who are fighting against you, and there remained of them only wounded men, every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. Now at verses 16 and 17. When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days, King Zedekiah sent for him and received him. The king questioned him secretly in his house and said, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, There is. Then he said, You shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. There does seem to be a recurring theme here. Are we picking this up? Chapter 38, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, Who you stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, the city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Verses 17, 18. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared. And this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. Mercy, this is repetitive. Chapter 39, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good, 
and they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you've put your trust in me, declares the Lord. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we ask that by your Spirit you help us see this rightly. Make us a hearing and obedient people, no matter the cost. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A poor fellow born in the 17th century by the name of John Bunyan in England. Had some schooling and then at the ripe old age of 16 joined the parliamentary army and took up battle in the English Civil War. After three years in the army, he returned to his home, Elstow, and took up the trade of a tinker, handyman, which he had learned from his father. He eventually became interested in religion after he had been married and attended a parish church, and then joined a strange group, the Bedford Meeting, a group of nonconformists. And he became a preacher. And after the restoration of the monarch, when freedom of nonconformists was curtailed, Bunyan was arrested for the hideous crime of preaching without a license and spent the next 12 years in prison because he would not agree to not preach. In that 12 years, he wrote his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and began the work, Pilgrim's Progress, which not published until some years after his release, he had relatively peaceful years after being released, a shorter imprisonment, still dying at age 59. Pilgrim's progress in the next 250 years, from his death until 1938, went through 1,300 editions. Not bad for a tinker, uneducated, who spent a good portion of his adult life incarcerated. One might say extraordinary. But I thought serving the Lord was supposed to all be sunshine and joy and happy and roses and wonderful, wonderful things. If so, not only Bunyan, but Jeremiah missed out in a big way. In the three chapters we look at, there were five statements, thus saith the Lord, basically, five times. There is really no distinction in any of them. Minor things but quite repetitive. 
But in this there is also imprisonment for Jeremiah. A dungeon, the court of the guard, the cistern, the court of the guard, and then finally, cared for by the governor appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. We get more insight into Zedekiah, the puppet king on the throne, put there by the Babylonians in place of his brother's son, the rightful heir, Kaniah, also called Jehoiakim. And after Zedekiah, no more Davidic kings in Jerusalem. The five words from the Lord here are all brief. Again, basically the same. And in this repetition, let let me point something out to you folks. When the Scripture goes to the trouble of repeating something, it might be we ought to camp there and figure out why. Now I've said before, when you read Jeremiah, it can be difficult to follow. It is not chronological. It is loosely thematic, but it's not easy to follow what Jeremiah is doing. You have to have a little bit of sanctified imagination, I think, along the way to pick up what's going on. In these chapters, I think we're confronted with a a certainty. You know, we expect to be protected from consequences if we're faithful when the Lord brings judgment against those who are unfaithful. We somehow want this thing to work out in such a way that in the providential judgment of the Lord, it's obvious we're His. We're good. Not having any effect on us. We, we want kind of the separation that you see in part of the plagues in Egypt where God rains down judgment on the Egyptians and protects the Israelites. But I'm here to tell you, my friend, that tends to be the exception rather than the rule. Lot and his family get away from the place of judgment, but they do not escape entirely the consequences of the judgment. Faithful service does not exempt us from fearful suffering. Faithful service does not exempt us from fearful suffering. Consider this verse. That 36th, or excuse me, 37th chapter is shouting a warning to Judah. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't trust in Egypt. In fact, the first two verses basically set the tone for the the rest of the other three chapters. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. Now here's the theme. But neither he nor his servants, nor the people of the land, listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. And then we begin the story. Zedekiah sends word. Now, this sounds so spiritual. Verse 3, the end of verse 3, here's the message. The request. Please, 
pray for us to the Lord our God. Now that sounds wonderful to our sanctified hearers, right? He's asking for prayer. And then we're given this rather peculiar assessment. Now, now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people, for he had not yet, and you might want to emphasize that, not yet been put in prison. When the army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt. When the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard the news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So what is he asking? Well, he has simply ignored what God has said, and now he's praying for, he's asking Jeremiah to pray that God will bless him in his disobedience. You see, he's been told, and this is told five times more or less here, and multiple times before, there's one way to come out of this. You go out, you surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, you quit fighting, and you go into captivity, and here's your prize of war. Here is your victory. You live. If you don't do that, nothing else guaranteed. But if you will go out, you will be saved. But you see, Zedekiah has deliberately violated God's word at least twice here. First of all, he swore an oath to Nebuchadnezzar in the name of the Lord that he would obey him. Now, folks, not many take this too seriously, but, oh, my friend, if you're going to invoke the Lord, you best ought to do what you said you're going to do. God takes his name seriously. So he's violating that. Part two, ever since the Exodus, the people had been forbidden to look back to Egypt for political or military aid. Every time in their history, they try to get help from Egypt or try to find salvation from Egypt. Every single time, it turns out wretchedly. They were told, don't go back. There is no going back. And Zedekiah is committing two sins here. And he's wanting something different. And so he's, he's going to Jeremiah and saying, please pray for us. Friend, let me let you in on a little secret here. Prayer is not always the answer. Now I know I just, finally some of you woke up there for a moment. Prayer is not always the answer. There are times the answer is obedience, not prayer. Prayer may be you hiding from what you ought to be doing. There's a line from a hymn. What more can he say than to you he hath said? That's kind of the message here for Zedekiah. You want something different. Okay, ain't happening. The word of the Lord comes, and what is it? Pharaoh's army's no help. Chaldeans are going to come back. You got all excited because the Chaldeans are now going to go fight the Egyptians. And you have some vague notion that somehow either Egypt's going to crush the Chaldeans or they're going to mess them up enough that they're going to leave you alone. They're coming back. You're not getting out of this. They will return. 
And in fact, the Lord makes it this emphatic. Let's say, let's just say that you managed to defeat all the Chaldeans and you think you've won. The Lord says, I'll use wounded Chaldeans to burn this city to the ground because you ain't fighting them. You're fighting me. Wow. And now that leads us to this outcome. Chaldean army is withdrawn from Jerusalem, going to meet Pharaoh's army. So everybody's got time, a little liberty. Jeremiah sets out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin. He's going back to Anathoth. He's got some business to take care of, receive his portion there among the people. Business stuff, it may be related to that property that he got while he was in prison. We don't know for sure. But as he's on his way out, one of the guards recognizes him. And uh, you're deserting to the Chaldeans. We got a traitor here. We got, don't let him out of the city. And Jeremiah is pushing back. It's a lie. I'm not deserting. I'm staying here. I'm, I'm just taking care of business. And they beat him. And they imprison him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, or secretary of state, you could say, who had been made into a prison. Down in the lower levels, they created a dungeon. He's falsely accused, arrested, beaten, imprisoned. One brother put it this way, mindless violence, shrill, irrational fury are familiar enough in our world, even sometimes in our streets. And the only explanation can be that it's a lie. These are people who are seeing everything through a delusional fog. And they think they, what, what they see brings out the worst in them. It's, they can't see it clearly. Folks, I, I read this and I think about what we see going on us, around us today. Have you not noticed the delusional fog that has crept into every aspect of our culture? Where at one time we could have reasonable, vigorous disagreement now the default setting is if you disagree with me, you hate me, you want me dead, and you need to be canceled. Delusion. My friend, rebel against the Lord long enough and you will get to the point you cannot see anything rational. Jeremiah's prophecies sound like treachery, a lack of patriotism. Likely the positions of authority, those who had protected him, had already been deported in one of the earlier assaults. The king is working in stealth mode. Have you not picked that up? Zedekiah can't do anything openly. He's scared to death. He's afraid to act. He's afraid not to act. He has no skill of leadership at all. And still, this is what's so pathetic about this. They've got him imprisoned. He's in the, in the dungeon. And in verse 17, Zedekiah sent for him, received him. And what does he ask him? Is there any word from the Lord? What do you want, Zedekiah? You think the Lord's going to change his mind because I'm in a dungeon? Hmm. 
There is. And boy, this is brief. You shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. Reader's Digest version, right? We cut into the chase. You want to know what's going to happen? You're doomed. And then he pleads with the king. Takes up his own defense. Why am I in prison for telling you the truth? And why do you keep coming down here asking me questions? By the way, where are all those guys who told you and claimed to be prophets that everything's going to work out beautifully? I don't see any of them down here. And everything they said was a lie. None of it came true. Everything I've told you has come true, yet I'm in the dungeon. Can I point out something, folks? There's a sense here where Judah's sin is being carried right now by Jeremiah. Listen to these words. It's Judah's sin, not his own, that causes Jeremiah to suffer. For this envoy sent from Yahweh's counsel, Yahweh's people, doesn't enjoy a charmed life or carry a safe conduct. He's like Isaiah's suffering servant. He bears his people's griefs, carries their sorrows. He's wounded for their transgressions. He's crushed for their iniquities. Now, folks, I'm not trying to take that away as a prophecy of the Messiah. But you do see here, right, what's going on. The man who's telling them the truth, the man who's the only man apparently living in any serious way righteously, he is the one who's taking the brunt because of their sin. Christian, take heed. You may suffer for righteousness' sake because of the sins of others. Thus, the response of reading this morning. Jesus never hid that persecution could be ours. And you notice he connected it. For so they persecuted the prophets... Boy, Jeremiah has to be at least in the top five of that bunch before you. Well, they get him out of the dungeon. Zedekiah doesn't want Jeremiah's blood on his hands. He doesn't have enough spine to free him, but he does act to preserve him. And so he's committed to the courtyard of the guard. And he got a daily allowance of food. The message, don't trust that which is not trustworthy. Don't trust Egypt. Second, chapter 38. Not only don't trust a false savior, but also don't submit to your fears. Now in this passage, the message of Jeremiah is front-loaded. You're told in verse 2. You're given the list of the guys who hear it. Verse 2, thus says the Lord, he who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live, he shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, the city shall surely be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, let this man be put to death. He's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man's not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. So he hands him over. Do with him what you want to. Shephatiah, Gedaliah, 
Pashur, Jukau, hear the prophetic word and they're furious. He's weakening our soldiers. He's weakening our people's resolve. He's a traitor. Good old Zedekiah, so pathetic, he basically says, do whatever you want for him to be silenced. That generation is seeing the ending of Jerusalem in its present form, the ending of Israel in its present form, the ending of the kingdom in its present form. Now, Jeremiah had been doing fairly well in the courtyard. He was still a prisoner, but he was well cared for. This time, it looks like a miserable ending. Now, cistern, for those who are unfamiliar, is just basically an underground water tank. So they lower him down in this cistern. Now, if you think of that sounds uncomfortable, it is. Tell you something about how bad all things were. There was no water left in it. The city's beginning to run out of water. There's only mud. There's only one way in, and you had to be lowered through it because basically it's through that opening that you reach down with a bucket to get water. Now all down there is mud, so they lower him down into this. Rather than sending him back to the dungeon of the Secretary of State, he's lowered into a cistern under the court of the guard. There's nothing here, my friend, but darkness, mud, and misery. Do not make light of what happens here. How do you get comfortable in mud? It's cold. It's robbing his body of heat. Moisture, no water, no food, and most of the time, very little light, if any. Christian, you ever felt like spiritually you've been in the cistern? Mm. Now, of all things, an outsider, Abed-Melech, mentioned in verse 7, from Ethiopia. He was in the king's house. He heard what had happened, and he goes to the king, and he says, verse 9, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern. He'll die there from hunger for there's no bread left in the city. Now, don't read too much into that because later you're going to say, well, there's bread. What he's saying is there's a daily allowance of bread. Who do you think's going to lower any bread down to this guy? And if they do send it to him, they're going to throw it down. Now, here you are in the darkness, in the mud. Somebody throws you down a loaf of bread. You've got to wipe the mud off of it for it to be edible. The fact is, they're likely just looking to let him starve down in that hole in the ground. The isolation, the darkness, the wet misery, the lack of food would have all been devastating on Jeremiah. Now, folks, hear what I'm saying. Not every servant of the Lord experiences being injured for their faithfulness, and not every servant of the Lord is delivered immediately for every fiery furnace deliverance for every lion's mouth shut for every mount carmel there's dungeons and cisterns and death the words of the psalmist would have had meaning here psalm 28 1 to you, O Lord, I call my rock, 
be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. This had to feel like being lowered into a grave, didn't it? Psalm 143, 7, answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. Even Jesus warned. In John 16, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of the synagogue. Now listen to these words. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. These men believed he was so dangerous and such a traitor that he was destroying the people and they're going to see him die for it or at the very least be put someplace out of sight, out of mind, out of the way. Zedekiah again shows he's blown by whatever wind is blowing. He's shamed by Ebed-Melech. Tells him to take 30 men. Now, did you ever wonder about that? Why does it take 30 men to get one man out of a hole in the ground? I don't think it took 30 men. I think it took some men to get him out and other men to guard the men who are getting him out so nobody interrupts him doing it. He shows a little bit of spine, you know. Apparently, Jeremiah's in pretty frail condition because they go to the trouble of finding some old rags and worn-out clothes to keep the rope from injuring him as they pull him out. My friends, whether we think of the fear of the leaders or the fear of Zedekiah or the people, their actions are all wicked. We understand they're afraid. How can you not be afraid when the most mighty army in the world is outside your city, has it surrounded, you're cut off, and there's really very little hope, and then you've got this guy on the inside saying, here's your way out, go surrender. We've heard all the stories about what the Babylonians do to captives. We're not about to go out there. We're the people of God. Yay us. We got the temple. Death. Fear. My friend, fear will always lead you to bad decisions. Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah, receives him at the third entrance of the temple. I'll ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah says, if I tell you, you'll surely put me to death. And if I give you counsel, you won't listen. He says, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Just tell me what I need to hear. What is the Lord saying? Verse 17, thus says the Lord God of hosts. And folks, it's the very same thing. Now hold on to that. We're going to circle back to that in a moment. Don't look for salvation and false saviors. Don't let fear define you rather than faithfully trusting what God says. Third, 39th chapter. Don't think the Lord forgets your faithfulness. And I say that's a weird heading for that one because of the way this one starts. And the way it starts is the judgment's fulfilled. We're given straight up history here. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem, besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. So in the space of, say, about 18 months, the siege ends with a breach in the city wall. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came, and they sat in the middle gate, and then they list all their names, which are all very long, hard-to-pronounce names, 
Verse 4. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. So the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. Do you think for a moment the word of the Lord is echoing in Zedekiah's mind as he's being captured? When they'd taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah. Riblah is in the region of Syria. It was along the road between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. And he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city. Those who had deserted to him and the people who remained, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard left in the land of Judah, some of the poor people who owned nothing, and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Now this account, elements of it are going to be repeated later. My friends, the message to Israel was there's a reason this happened and you were warned it would happen and you were warned there were ways to escape the worst of it and you wouldn't listen to the Lord. There's not just a word of judgment fulfilled, there's a word of protection. We're told in verse 11, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, take him, look after him well, do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, and then the other fellows there, Nebu, Nebuzab, oh, never mind. Uh, all those hard names again. Sent and took Jeremiah from the court of the guard. They entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he lived among the people. He was freed. Given charge of Gedaliah. And then here we have a word again. Only this word, besides being a word of judgment, is a word of hope, and it's a word of hope to a foreigner. You remember Ebed-Melech, who had saved Jeremiah's life? The Lord noted that. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he shut up in the court of the guard. Go and say to Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll fulfill my words against the city for harm, not for good. They'll be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord. You'll not be given to the hand of the men of whom you're afraid. What was his fear? Probably two fears. One was that the Jewish folk would turn on him to leadership because he was a foreigner, and he had advocated for Jeremiah, but also he didn't know what the Babylonians would do to him. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword. You shall have your life as a prize of war, because you'll put your trust in me, declares the Lord. 
Though there's still a word of judgment, there's also a word of mercy for this one who saved Jeremiah's life. This echoes to me Jesus' own statement in Mark 9, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to me will by no means lose his reward. The Lord cares for those who care for his people. He shows great kindness here. I know. So, how do we, what are we supposed to do with this? You have danger of false saviors, of fear, and thinking maybe the Lord forgets you and your failings. The Lord doesn't forget Ebed Melech. He doesn't forget Jeremiah. He delivers them. And we ought to be reminded of this, my friend. Jesus even warns his own generation. Luke 11. So you're witnesses, you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they'll kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel, the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Now I say that to you, my friends, for you to do just a little comparative here. Judah and before them Israel refused to heed and hear the word of God Almighty and it cost them in terms of temporal judgment. And yet judgment that had some element of hope, a return. The very Son of God comes among His people, offers Himself to them as their Savior, and they reject Him. And the judgment that falls within a generation is so horrifying and so complete that it's 19 centuries before they can come back into the land as a people. May I point out to you, it is one thing to reject under the terms of the Old Covenant, it is a far more dangerous, deadly thing to reject the terms of the New Covenant and the Son of God who gives Himself for His people. Consider this faithful Christian. The world will hate the Gospel you must still preach it. The world will oppose you because of the gospel. You must still proclaim it. The world will try to get you to drop elements. You must still embrace it and teach it. You and I do not have leave from the Lord God Almighty to alter His Word. No matter how it is hated, loathed, attacked, or treated. Better to be thought a fool and a bigot 
then contradict what God Almighty has said. But my friend, the cost may be jails and dungeons and cisterns and gulags and re-education camps and prison and your very life. Do not allow the haze, the days, the foolishness, the fogginess, the anger of our time to somehow wheedle you around into denying the only salvation that anyone can find. Repent of your sins. And yes, you have sins. And don't for a minute let the world tell you that some of these things aren't sins anymore. What God says is sin is sin. Full stop. Do not for a moment think the Lord is going to alter his word, alter his kingdom, alter his governance to somehow make it easier for you. You will repent of your sin and you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you will not be saved. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? Do you hear the echoes of the message of judgment here? Go out and make peace quickly. If you'll run out to Nebuchadnezzar, here's what you get. You get your life. <laughs> My friend, what does it profit you if all the world smiles and says, oh, you're a wonderful person. We're so much, so happy. You're awakened. You're woke. You get it. You're on the side, the right side of history. I just find that language so appalling, so marvelously appalling. No, my friend, that side of history ended in smoldering ruins, not far from the Dead Sea several hundred years ago. <laughs> Believe the gospel, find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, grant it, we pray.